Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. So glad that you're joining me again today as we are studying the book of Revelation together. I hope you have been enjoying this and learning from it. If this is your first time to join us, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. I would uh, really recommend, if you can, go back and listen to all the previous podcasts of the um, Book of Revelation study, as well as a study that I did about oh, a couple of months before the Revelation study, which was a broader study on end times prophecy itself called Understanding the End. And that would even help you to study that first, go over that uh, series of podcast episodes, and then then into the verse-by-verse study of Revelation. But anyway, we're uh, quickly getting through this book. We still got a lot to cover, but we're in chapter 16. If you'll turn in your Bible or if you have it on your phone, wherever, uh, be looking with me in Revelation chapter 16. On our last podcast episode, we uh, told you that we're now looking at the seventh uh, are the seven vile judgments, which are the third and final series of seven judgments that are found in this book of Revelation. Now, the hardest thing about this book, again, I mean, there there are many difficult aspects to interpreting Revelation, but one of the most difficult, in my opinion, is trying to put all these events in some chronological order or time frame. And that's because they don't seem to fit like one after another in consecutive order. They seem to be more uh, simultaneous. They seem to be happening at times together. And uh, we looked at the seven uh, seal judgments that began in chapter 6, and then we looked at the seven trumpet judgments that began in chapter 8. And now we're on the final set of seven judgments called the seven vile or bold judgments, uh, and they're similar. There's some definite similarities uh, within these uh, series of, say, 21 judgments. And, of course, as I've been mentioning quite a bit, there is a lot of Old Testament uh, teaching, a lot of Old Testament uh, reference and, and symbol and, and uh, uh, typology from the Old Testament, similarities at least, that make us think about uh, the magnitude of these judgments and so on. And remember, the judgments of the seals, the trumpets, and the vials are really directly from God on the world. Now, there are other horrific things, terrible things that are happening during this period known as the tribulation period, a seven-year period that I believe, in my view of eschatology or end-time events, it begins immediately after the rapture of God's people and begins a period of seven years called the tribulation. It's divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods. And all of this we've been seeing and, and studying, and we covered it even in our broader uh, discussion of end times prophecy as a whole. And all this is brought out in Revelation. And with that in mind, the events of the 21 judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the vials, fit into that seven-year tribulation period somewhere. Again, I'm not going to try to be dogmatic. I don't think any uh, commentator, Bible teacher, anybody I've ever read could be dogmatic about when they happen. They're, it's it's very tough to to lay out a chronological uh, scenario of these events. So we're just going to study them as they come and just try to note the similarities and try to do the most we can. When we have enough information from the text and cross-referencing with other Bible text, which is key to understanding the Bible. All Bible interpretation is based on cross-referencing and understanding other places in the Bible. As the great 
Bible teachers of the past have said the, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And that is very, very true. Well, we studied through the fifth vial last week. We studied one through five. Remember, each of these vile judgments or bold judgments, they might be called in uh, your translation, um, really are unleashed by the wrath of God upon the earth. They're like pouring out some liquid out of a vase or a bowl or a vial or a container. And once it's poured out on the ground, it can't be brought back. And it's basically showing that God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. Uh, it's very much called that. In verse 1, it said, go your ways. God's telling, uh, or a voice was telling the seven angels, probably God, uh, go your ways and pour out the vials, seven vials, of the wrath of God upon the earth. So we've looked at uh, five of them, and now we're going to start in verse 12 and read the text again. We do the same method of going through verse by verse. I like to teach verse by verse. We do it at our church uh, through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights, through the New Testament in my particular adult class on Sunday at our Bible study at 930. Uh, and I'm just using that same format, other than I'm just doing it alone with you at this particular point and reading the text with you. We have other readers and, and people get more involved in, in uh, our study uh, at the church. But now, let's read now, if you have your place there at Revelation 16. I'm going to now read the sixth vial, and we'll go back over it. Beginning at verse 12, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Well, let's go back over this because there's just so much here. This sixth vial, it says to be poured out upon the great river Euphrates. Now, you remember these rivers in the Middle East. They were first mentioned in, in the uh, story of the Garden of Eden, the creation account. And there were four rivers given there. And, of course, after the flood of Noah, the whole topography, the whole landscape of the Middle East, as well as the whole world was changed. So we can't be sure about exactly how that uh, flood altered the river Euphrates, but it's still one of the major rivers over in the Middle East. It flows through countries like, uh, I believe, Iraq and Iran, both parts of that and into other uh, parts of the Middle East. But anyway, we've already been introduced uh, a little bit to uh, this river Euphrates, and we're going to use that um, previous mention to kind of build on our interpretation of this sixth vial. And remember how I told you last week that some of these vials kind of go on top of each other. Even the numbers are similar. Remember how we saw last week how the first, second, and third vial were similar to uh, the first, second, and third uh, trumpet judgment with the uh, different plagues that came upon uh, the earth. And this one, the sixth vial, seems to be similar, at least, to the sixth trumpet judgment. 
because in that particular judgment found back in chapter 9, we had a mention of the river Euphrates there too. Let me just read you chapter 9 back in Revelation 9.14. Saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now, he calls it the same thing here, the great river Euphrates. Of course, at that time, maybe perhaps one of the greatest rivers known to mankind, the known world. Of course, there's other rivers like the Amazon and the Mississippi here in the States that are great rivers, but really weren't known, uh, as far as we can tell, back uh, in the times of, of the book of Revelation. So Euphrates was one of the great, large, massive, uh, dominating rivers of the Middle East. And here's what this vile judgment involves. When this angel pours it out, it says that the waters are going to be dried up. That seems kind of ironic. He pours out a judgment, which you think of liquid being poured out, but it's actually going to dry up the river. And here's why. Here's the key. That the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, we were re- we were introduced to an army way back in that uh, sixth trumpet uh, that I want to bring up again because it's going to connect here. And this is, again, a very good proof of what I've been saying that to, to interpret the book of Revelation, you've got to take several places where things are mentioned. They're not always just mentioned in one place only. Uh, God will mention something and go back to it or refer back to it or say some additional information later. And he does that here. Because in the reference of the sixth trumpet I was reading back in chapter 9, remember how the four angels, which were probably demonic creatures, the word angels can refer to demons, fallen fallen angels. Uh, and it says, And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. I won't get into the interpretation of that, but I do want to say that beginning in verse 16 now of chapter 9, Under that sixth trumpet, it says, And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. And I heard the number of them. Now, if you go back and study that episode, hopefully you may have already listened to it, you'll remember that I mentioned that that 200 million, that's so amazing. We don't even believe that at the time John wrote the book of Revelation, there were even 200 million people on all of the planet Earth itself. I'm just taking reference to commentators I've read and and statisticians and population experts that go back and and kind of can can figure by the population growth percentages over the centuries they've been keeping statistics that there probably wasn't even 200 million men on the whole planet. This makes it amazing. And by the way, the 200,000,000, there was no word for million in the in the Greek language when when John wrote this. So when it's translated from Greek into English, the translators just translated 200,000,000, which that's six zeros instead of just three. So we know it's a million. So it's 200 million men. Now, that same army that was referred to in chapter 9, the 200 million man army, is really referred to now more more definitely, more specifically in verse 12. It says that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, we are bringing all this into the final uh, terrifying battle, the judgment it will be from God to on earth, to those on earth gathered at this battle. 
It's been commonly known and popularly known as the Battle of Armageddon. We saw the word there in verse 16, the title of the place where they'll gather. And it's taken that name from that place, Armageddon, or the Valley of Megiddo. And I'll get there in a minute. But let me just go back to verse 12 and say that I believe this battle, known as the Battle of Armageddon, will be fought against by, by two armies. Most most battles are. You have uh, uh, two armies fighting against each other. They might have a lot, a lot of allies, a lot of confederations of nations together, like World War One, World War Two is a good example. Really, there were just two two parties fighting those battles, but they were made up of a lot of nations. Well, that's going to be how I think this Battle of Armageddon is going to play out. And we're introduced to the first contestant, the first opponent in this battle, the Kings of the East. Now, that's a very broad statement, and so I don't want to be too specific, and I don't want to come across as in any way prejudiced or bigoted by what I'm saying here. Um, but I can't help but say that the, the country of China, uh, and we love the Chinese people, and, and we as Christians love all people, and God loves the world. He sent his son that everybody could be saved. But we at the same time must state how evil the Communist Party is that holds those, I don't know what the population of China is today. I, last I remember reading 1.5 or 1.6 billion with a B. Uh, and these poor people are held under the tyranny of atheistic communism. But years ago, I believe Mao Zedong did it. It might have been a, a leader after him, but I think Mao Zedong, who was the leading revolutionary in, in uh, overcoming uh, overthrowing the previous government of China in 1949, thereabouts. Anyway, he boasted for years that China alone could field a standing army of 200 million men. And I remember reading in some prophecy books earlier in my life that uh, that really got the attention of prophecy teachers and, and so forth when they heard it, him make this boast that China alone could field an army of 200 million men. And, and if it was Mao Zedong who said it, I'm just going by memory, but I'm pretty sure it was, that would have been at least a couple decades ago, if not more. And you can imagine it's even grown larger now. So when it says the kings of the East, I'm not going to just say it's only China. There's other communistic countries. We know Vietnam, North Korea. Uh, we could just say there's almost a confederation of uh, at least socialist, if not downright communist, atheistic countries in the Far East that I think will be represented. And notice the word kings, plural, tells me that there's going to probably be a confederation, an, an alliance of several Eastern, Far Eastern countries and they're going to battle against the Antichrist. He's going to be their, their enemy. And they're going to come against him. Because now, by this time in the tribulation period, let's kind of bring together some things we've been seeing. We believe the Antichrist is already uh, in control, well in control of the world, has been at least for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Uh, most commentators would say he probably takes power sometime, if not at the very beginning, of the first three and a half years, so mainly for the whole seven years. Now, he, he's ruling differently. I think he rules by peace and diplomacy in the first three and a half years to deceive the world, but then by military force and bloodshed in the last three and a half years. But either way, what we have coming is by the time this battle of Armageddon is fought, and I believe, and I'll show you when we get further in this text and then pick it up in chapter 19 where it's really finalized, 
that uh, we're close to the very end of the tribulation period. And you say, well, why is this battle fought? Well, primarily it would appear that the kings of the east are tired of being under the control of the Antichrist. Isn't it amazing, and it's not accidental, that the Western societies of civilization have been so much different than the Eastern societies. I've done a lot of study. I love history. I love the history of civilization, uh, uh, Eastern and Western. I've studied, of course, more Western because that's where we're from and our heritage is more Western. But it's amazing to today. And, and I've heard it from missionaries. I've read many a mission letter and talked to missionaries who work in what we would call the Eastern civilizations of the world, at least the Far East, Asia, and so on. The people and their mindset and, and their way of living, their religious beliefs, their spiritual beliefs have been so much different than the West that it doesn't surprise me at all that the Eastern kings, whoever these are, probably headed up with communist China. You could almost have to say they're part of this. They're the largest, most dominant culture over there. Um, you have to believe that they have just gotten frustrated and tired of of. Uh, following the ways of the Antichrist, him making himself God. We believe he goes into the temple in Jerusalem and uh, sets himself up as God, demanding the worship of man. Remember to take his mark, <coughs> pardon me, to take the mark of the beast we saw in chapter 13. And I think basically the, the peoples of the East, which are a huge, huge uh, amount of our population, I, I don't even have the numbers now, and we can't be sure what they'll be after the rapture and into the tribulation, and we're even at the end of the tribulation by the time we get to the Vale of Armageddon, so the numbers could be depleted quite a bit, but still, they're a major force in the world, a major population block in the world, and so, however it happens, I think the, the kings are going to come together, and they're going to say, we've had it, we're not going to uh, succumb to this man's uh, policies, we're not going to take his mark, we're not going to be hijacked and and, you know, blackmailed, if you will, into his world order. And so they do do the only thing left they think they can do, and that is to prepare to battle against him, to, to, to overthrow his uh, dictatorship over the world. Now, that's a physical definition. That's a uh, human kind of uh, way of thinking uh, about this whole thing. But I don't want you to forget the demonic, the spiritual realm, because it goes right into that into the next verse. Look what it says in verse 13. Part of the sixth vial, and I saw three unclean spirits. These again are demons, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon. This is symbolic language. Of course, they're not frogs. This is like frogs. Um, they're eerie. They're creepy. They're they're evil. Uh, they come out of the mouth of the dragon, which is a reference to Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Notice you got all three. So it's kind of like the satanic trinity all speaking and working uh, through these armies. I think they're leading these armies. Hey, this is why I brought up uh, that the atheistic aspect of uh, many, not all, thank God there's some wonderful, wonderful Christians in China and all those Eastern countries. We support missionaries in places like Japan and in Korea, South Korea for sure, and some in, that have gotten into North Korea, and Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, we can go on and on, Indonesia, all those areas. But having said that there are some wonderful Christians in, in churches, that's not the dominant 
uh, faith, we know that's not the dominant spiritual system in most of those countries. It's it's atheistic. It's communistic, and you could see how demons could could easily control and influence these kings and their armies to make their journey to Armageddon, where this battle is going to be fought. Well, it goes on and says, "For they are spirits of devils, demons, working miracles." Wow, that's interesting. We've already seen how the Antichrist. Uh, will work miracles. The false prophet, his his sidekick, will work miracles. Remember the image of the beast? Some kind of a robotic, artificial intelligence type thing? We don't know, but it's going to be an image of the beast that will come alive and people will worship it. That's miraculous, at least for the to the uh, naked eye of man, a man, man who has no spirituality to him. A person that's not saved is totally bankrupt of any discernment about spiritual matters, about truth. They can be easily deceived, and they're going to be deceived. And I think these demons will lead them, it says, uh, which go forth under the kings of the earth and of the whole world. Wow, there's the other side of this battle I told you about. Now, it doesn't say it specifically, but if you got the kings of the east, well, it's pretty easy to, to decipher that the other opponent who's going to meet them in Armageddon is the kings of the west. And that is going to be the Antichrist's forces. We think the kings, plural, mean uh, the revived Roman Empire. I've referred to it a little bit in the study of Revelation, more in our study of understanding the end. He's going to lead a confederacy of some say 10, because remember the 10 horns and the seven crowns and all the numbers referred to earlier. We've been telling you those are probably 10 leaders of a confederation of of uh, maybe segments or portions or provinces of the world that he he controls, and uh, they're going to see the threat, no doubt. They're going to know this threat from the east that's coming, and it's on its way, and they'll have the technology, as we already have today, to easily see that they're on the move, and all of a sudden, now this miracle, probably a miracle of drying up the Euphrates River. Now, they may do it manually. That's okay. I don't have to say for sure it's a miracle, but it did say that the sixth angel poured out his great, uh, poured out his vial in the great river Euphrates, and it dried up, so it's possible it's a, a miracle. It just says, working miracles. Um, and here, here God can even use the work of the demonic. This is a tremendous truth about the providence of God. It means God's in control and he's working out a plan and nothing's going to thwart that plan. Nothing's going to stop that plan. He could even use the work of the devil who doesn't even know what he's doing to do God's bidding. And I think he does it with these demons, these three unclean spirits. Anyway, it brings them all together. I think the kings of the West will be the Antichrist, kings of the East, the, the uh, Chinese confederacy, perhaps, of the communistic countries. And it says to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, that's, that's really intriguing. They think they're coming to fight one another, and they think they're coming to have a great battle to defeat their, their worst enemy. You know, the Antichrist defeating the, the Eastern kings, the Eastern kings thinking they'll defeat the Antichrist. Really, this is God's battle. He is going to show up, and he's going to be the victor over both of them. <laughs> I'm throwing that in as a little preview. I, I will uh, give you a cliffhanger. We'll wait and see that later. But actually, the battle is not going to be fought between these two forces at all. They'll gather for it there, but actually Christ will return and judge both of them at that battle place. But speaking of Christ, now notice this very amazing uh, inclusion in verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, 
lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, I've always been perplexed by this and studying with other people in our church and our men, a group of men, we studied it recently. It's always been amazing that this is thrown in here. Now, if you have a red letter edition Bible like I have, it's kind of just sticks right out of the page here. He just, Jesus, right out, out of nowhere, behold, I come as a thief. Why does he throw that in there? Well, he does that a number of times in this book, these little kind of parenthetical little asides, little disclaimer statements. And I think he does it to get our attention. And hopefully the text that we've been reading has got our attention. It's like he's been telling us about these horrifying things that are coming. And we know that people who actually will be part of this battle of Armageddon are not who he's speaking to. He can't be speaking to them. They're going to be lost, wicked sinners. Uh, they're, they're going to be people who are going to be punished at the battle of Armageddon. They're actually going to lose their lives at this battle. It's not them he's, he's, he's relating to. Why does he throw this in there? For the reader, people like you and I, uh, in all these periods of time before this battle is fought, and especially even before the events of the end times begin. Hey, this was written back in around 100 AD or a little less, and so it's been around for 1,900 plus years, and what he's wanting us to see is when you're reading this as maybe a non-believer, there's a lot of unbelievers who read Revelation, they're really you know, curious, scared, intrigued, you know, uh, about it. They read it. Well, he's wanting to get their attention. Behold, that's what the word means. You better listen. Wake up. I come as a thief. Hey, as you're reading all these things, remember, you're going to be left behind to be a part of this horror, this terrifying period known as the tribulation, the climaxes with this battle of Armageddon. So it's like the Lord is saying, hey, wake up, realize that I'm coming you better realize that there's not a lot a lot of time left. Notice he says, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. See, the come as a thief is the urgency, is the unpredictability of it. Hey, a thief comes, you're not ready. Uh, if a thief gets into your house, it means you weren't prepared. You were sleeping, your house wasn't secure. Uh, that's the way Jesus is describing his coming to those who aren't ready. And that phrase is used in a number of places. It was found in Matthew 24, 43, and and Paul used it in his references to the, the second coming in 1 Corinthians and in, in 2 Thessalonians and so on. I mean, it's very, very familiar. Uh, so he says, you better wake up and be ready. And here's how you know you're, you're going to be ready. And here's how you can be called blessed. Oh, the Lord calls people blessed, happy. It could be translated happy, but it, but it means happiness for a reason, blessed for a reason. You're blessed if you watch. And that means you, see, you watch. You don't let a thief break into your house. If you're watching, he can't break in. You've got lights. You've got uh, security cameras. You've got the doors locked. Uh, you may be standing there with a weapon in your hand, ready. I mean, whatever. That's the picture. You're watching. And you keep your garment. What does that mean, keep his garments? He's talking about living the right kind of life. The only people that really watch for the Lord's coming and are ready when he comes, ready to meet him and stand before him and escape the judgment on earth, are those who have been delivered from their sins. This is a picture of salvation. Uh, keepeth his garments. What does it mean by that? It's a picture of purity. Your garments are to be clean. Now, we are made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. That's true. That's a positional thing. We are made righteous. But we're also to practically live out righteousness as a Christian. We need that too. And so he says, blessed is he that keepeth his garments. That's the Christian. And we're to keep 
our lives period. Doesn't mean we never sin. Doesn't mean we'll do it perfectly. But our direction ought to be to live a holy life. Lest, now he gives you the other side of it, lest you be one of these people that walk naked and they see his shame. So the garment, notice the covering, the picture's covering. If you don't keep your garment on, you don't keep, your, keep yourself clothed in the righteousness of Christ and keep your life right with him and picture the fact that you're a follower of Christ and living right, you're going to be ashamed, ashamed as a person that is naked. You know, nakedness uh, is a shame. And the more a culture takes its clothes off and shows all its nakedness, the more shame they should be. We don't see much shame in our culture, but God gave us a natural uh, modesty. We ought to have a modesty. Remember when Adam and Eve first sinned and they had made these fig leaves to cover their private parts and they weren't sufficient. They immediately saw their nakedness, didn't they? And God had to kill some animals in the garden and, and, and take the coats of those animals and cover them properly. And that's a picture. There's so much in that. I don't have time to develop that more, but there's definitely a, a, a correlation between shame and nakedness and it ought to remain so. God made us a, a, a private a private part of our lives. Uh, sexuality and so on is a private thing. It's a beautiful thing. There's nothing dirty or wrong about it within the confines of marriage between husband and wife. But outside of that, it's a shame. It's a disgrace. Now, let me finish this part of our text. Uh, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So there's a, there's a place, and I'm going to refer to it even more when we get to the actual battle in chapter 19. But I will tell you that most commentators think it's in this valley called Megiddo or the Valley of Jezreel. It's called that in the Old Testament. I went to Israel on, on a trip years ago. I know uh, something about the land, the topography of the land, and most commentators agree that this battle uh, will be fought in, a, in that valley. It's a beautiful valley. It's an it's a, it's a ideal uh, military battlefield. Uh, it, it has mountains on certain sides of it, but for the most part, the whole, whole area of the valley is completely flattened and perfect for a battle, and that's where I think this battle is going to be fought. Well, let me go on and finish the chapter, because now we get this climactic ending. In verse 17, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great." Well, let me summarize this. It won't take a long time to do this because this is really the end of the tribulation period. This is connected with the Battle of Armageddon and all the, the horrific kind of the finale, the grand finale of this period. Notice, as soon as the seventh angel pours out his vial, it says there's a voice comes. And I believe that voice is the same vo voice that we saw uh, in chapter uh, 16, verse 1, and now this voice says, same, same great voice out of the temple, it is done. It is done. Well, what is done? It doesn't mean it's the end of time itself, 
Because there's still a millennial kingdom coming and eternity where no time will be kept. I think he means the, the, the judgment of God is done and this period known as the tribulation is coming to a close. And the description is very similar uh, to other passages such as in Daniel 12 and in, in uh, Zechariah chapter 13 and 14, or 12, 13 and 14, really. I'm not going to take time to go back and get too much into those, but I would refer you to reading Daniel uh, 12 and Zechariah 12, 13 and 14, because he, they describe the same thing. It seems like when the end comes, there's these tumultuous, uh, devastating uh, earthquakes. Nothing like them has ever it says, such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake. We know when Jesus comes back at, uh, in his visible return, and that's going to tie into the battle of Armageddon. I'll wait till chapter 19 to get more in detail on this. But his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, and as soon as they do, when his feet hit the ground on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah chapter 14, this great earthquake that separates the city, here it is, it's described, and the great city, that's Jerusalem was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. There's going to be earthquakes all over the world. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God. Now, I want to hold off on getting too far to that statement because that's going to be our main subject in the next two chapters, which are very, very amazing. There's so much said about this Babylon. I think it's the same entity, but I'll get into that next week. Lord willing, chapter 17 and 18 are about mystery Babylon the Great. And that's who he's talking about here. And they're going to be judged. This whole system's going to be judged. And when this finale comes, he says, it comes up into remembrance that God served her what she deserved, the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. He destroys mystery Babylon, I think, probably before this actual battle, but there may be remnants of it still holding on that are now punished and, and, and judged. Remnants of that whole system known as Mystery Babylon the Great. Either way, we know that it's finally going to be completely devastated, completely removed, and completely judged by God. And he gives every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Wow. Is this worldwide? It could be. It doesn't seem to indicate otherwise. I don't know. It doesn't say a particular amount of those, like we've seen him say a third part of this or a fourth of this or whatever. Here he doesn't say that. Evidently, every island that's still left on earth, all the mountains are leveled. Boy, this is amazing. And this is going to lead into the beautiful kingdom of Christ that we'll get to later at the end of the book. But this is the grand finale of all judgment. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. I, I think it's perhaps at the same time. It seems to be at the same time all this is happening. If you escape uh, other things, well, hail's going to fall upon you. Look at how heavy this hail is. Every stone about the weight of a talent, that's 75 pounds. That's how much a talent weighed in that day when John wrote this. Can you imagine a hailstone weighing 75 pounds? I think earlier I referred to the biggest hail I've ever saw was right here in Texas when I came here in 1980, and there was a terrible hailstorm when I was visiting my mom, who lived right here in Arlington where our church is right now. And anyway, I've never seen hail that big. It was big as a softball. But that would be, that's going to be like a speck. That's going to be like a piece of sand compared to 75-pound hailstones. But notice, as I'll close with this, and men blasphemed God. You'd think with all that has happened, all the judgment, all the horror, all the death, all the misery, all the pain and suffering, 
that people have went through, the wicked have went through during this period. Not only from God, mainly from God, but even living under this wicked tyrant known as the Antichrist and his false prophet. You'd think they would repent. You'd think they would realize how wicked their lives are and how much they have brought this on themselves by their life, but they don't. See, hell won't change people. Hell won't convert people. Uh, God doesn't send people to hell so that that'll change their attitude or change them so he'll one day let them out. They never get out because they never change. Here's a very good evidence of it. Men still blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague thereof was exceeding great. And I think it's the plague. It's the final plague. It's the end of the tribulation period as we know it. Now, we're not done with this book. Because I told you, it's not in chronolo chronological order. We're going to go and study now Mystery Babylon, the next two chapters, and then we'll get to the climactic ending. We'll pick it up again in chapter 19. Well, thank you for being with me today. Remember, our motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people. God bless you.